Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Okay, Cass, I have a question for you. Have you ever been to Colonial Williamsburg? I have not, but this has been on my sister Haley and I's list, like wish list, bucket list forever. I would absolutely love, love, love to go to Colonial Williamsburg because I love going back in time and those places like that, you know, it's like living history brought to life. Yeah, absolutely. And I have been, um, but I was in high school at the time. So I really wasn't so into history at that point. <laughs> so you, you and Haley let me know we should plan a trip. Yes, absolutely. I would love to go back because I think I would, well, I don't think, I know (laughs) that I would see it in a very, very different light today. So let's do it. Let's plan a trip. I'm in. Okay. (laughs) Now we just have to, we just have to wrangle Haley. Um, So listeners, whether you have actually been to Colonial Williamsburg or not, I'm guessing that many of you have probably been to other historic sites or historic houses around the area where you live where reenacting or interpretation may be part of their programming. And if so, you may have also wondered about the individual's portraying a particular trade, how they learned that, or maybe they were even portraying a specific person. I mean, I know I certainly have. And Cass, several weeks back, I had the pleasure of sitting down with historic interpreter and educator Cheney McKnight to learn more about this profession of living historian. Yes, and Cheney is the living history coordinator at the New York Historical Society, where she actually develops programming and oversees a team of fellow historic interpreters who literally breathe life into history. They sure do. And Cass, I have to say, Cheney and my conversation was so engrossing that we just kept going. So friends, this is actually going to be a two-parter. In part one of this episode, we discuss the profession of a living historian and Cheney's specific experiences. And in part two, we discuss some of her research on the dress and fashion history of enslaved women in the United States during the 18th and 19th centuries, particularly in terms of the styles of head wraps they wore. So please be sure to tune into part two. It is really fascinating. And without further ado, Cheney, welcome to Dressed. Cheney, thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. Um, I really, really wish that we were doing this interview in person, in studio, but alas, you and I are both on pause here in NYC. How are you hanging in there on that front? I'm doing well, um, you know, as well as can be. We're um, in the middle of a pandemic as well as um, all of the struggles that we're going through right now in our country. Um, I think it's, I think this time is important for us. Um, I think it actually was kind of a good thing that this happened during a pandemic because we are all free to participate and focus very narrowly on this issue. So um, it's also, um, in a way, a very hopeful time right now. So um, 
I'm very interested to see how the young folks push this through. Yeah, absolutely. I think I sent you an email like a few weeks back and I was like, I go through alternating bouts of rage and faith (laughs) and they just keep going back and forth. So you and I first met last fall, I think, and that was when you came to FIT with Abby and Lauren of American Duchess. And uh, you all did a talk and a demonstration to promote your book, which is called The American Duchess Guide to 18th Century Beauty. And our regular listeners will, of course, probably realize that we've mentioned this book a couple times on the show now, and you contributed an essay to the book on how African hair was perceived in 18th century Europe and its colonies. And and that topic is tangential to some of the things that we're going to talk about today. But first, I was hoping to ask you about your path, what led you to study this, because you are a living historian and what does a living historian do? And perhaps you might explain uh, the difference to our listeners between historic reenactment and historic interpretation, because there is a distinction there. Yes. Um, so I actually, at times, uh, go by all three and at very specific times. So for my definition of a living historian, it's a person who actively studies and participates in historical trades, methods, and activities. I would consider people like uh, Coopers and blacksmiths and historic cooks, people in foodways, even dressmakers. I would consider them, if they are doing it in a historical manner using historical techniques, I would consider those living historians. There is so much debate over what is a living historian, what is not, but that's my definition, someone that specializes in historical trades and methods. Uh, Now, going over to a reenactor, I always go back to the Webster Dictionary, uh, what a reenactor is, because I think it's the best definition a person who participates in reenactments of historical events. That's it. Straight up. (laughs) It's so broad, (laughs) so broad. Um, And usually it is very much a hobbyist, someone who does it on their free time, on their own dime. And then for historical interpreters, I actually found a definition at the University of British Columbia, and I thought that they had a really good definition for it. A historical interpreter navigate the public through history. They're a guide who bridges the past to their audience. Um, As they take them through curated exhibits, historical sites, and landscapes. So for me, when I think of a historical interpreter, I think to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know if you've seen, you've read the books or... I've read the book and I've seen the movie more than once. Yes, me too. And so when I think of that, I think of uh, the both the book and the movie and how you need to approach it just like if someone's coming from another planet. And you have to explain everything to them because in reality, a lot of the methods and the basics of living have changed so much that you have to start from, you have to start from ground one. So I would say a uh, historical interpreter is someone who is guiding you through a world of the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's, it's a skill. 
how I differentiate between reenactors and historical interpreters. Historical interpreters are in a profession. A lot of times they have training, the NAI, National Association of Interpretation, I'm certified. I went through years and years of training to get to the point where I am now in my career. And so when I have interpreters, I'm in charge of interpreters, and I expect a lot from my interpreters. They're wonderful, so talented. And so I expect that when guests leave, they have had an engaging and an educational experience where possibly when you get a hobbyist or a reenactor, uh, you get what you get. Right, right. Um, and I would say that I am all three. Uh, at times, I uh, maybe twice a year, I work with a reenacting group that's specifically a civilian Black reenactor group called the Sons and Daughters of Ham. Uh, and then uh, for a living, I'm a historical interpreter, and I specialize in recreating uh, the clothing of the enslaved, so also a living historian. Yeah. How did you first come to living history? And were you a hobbyist before you turned pro? So how I got into reenacting was through Marvin Greer or Mag the Historian. You should definitely go check him out. He's an amazing historian and a historical interpreter. So I went to middle school with Marvin. And so it was right after college and I was looking through Facebook and I saw Marvin in historical garb. And I was a little bit taken aback because he's black. <laughs> and I was like, what's going on here? Um, have you been kidnapped? Let me know, <laughs> we will come and get you. And he explained to me that it was completely something that he was very interested in, if that makes sense. He explained to me that this was something that he really loved. And it added up because in middle school, he loved history. He was obsessed. He used to bring old rusty things uh, to school. And <laughs> so it would make sense that this would be what he grew up to be. So... Um, I got into reenacting through him, the hobby side. I was very lucky. I got in with Black people. I think it's so important that when Black people start, they should start with Black people. Uh, there's a lot of things that interpreting while Black is a thing, and it's crazy. Uh, you need a guide there with you. Um, I saw the potential impact on people who were viewing these very interesting stories as we were moving through the reenactments that we attended. At times, the conversations that it sparked, they were very powerful. And I knew right away that this was something that I wanted to do. And I wanted to utilize historical interpretation as well as historical costuming to tell a larger story, um, as well as connect with my ancestors. I felt for the first time in my life that I was complete in some way once I started really connecting with the things that my ancestors had been doing, what they were wearing, and what spaces they were in. And so I came back from my first reenactment, quit my job at a law <laughs> firm, and, uh, <laughs> and I've been... Uh, I went to a, I went down the street. I used to live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I went down the street to Mount Vernon Hotel Museum and Garden, knocked on their door and was like, hey, 
I want to do this. Uh, can I volunteer? Right. Can I volunteer? Can I get a job? And they were like, you can volunteer. And within two months, I had a job there. And then I worked my way up. And so that's how I really jumped in. That's amazing. I feel like a lot of historians or maybe even fashion historians have a similar just moment that sparked that connection. And they're like, oh, no, I'm all in now. Like, throw, right. it, all, throw it all out the window. <laughs> I'm doing this now. So research is very, very much at the core of what you do. Can you tell us a little bit about your research process and where do you go to find some of the very specific primary sources that you use in your work? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) We're going deep today. (laughs) Right. Oh, we're going deep. So, uh, again, um, I was very lucky that I started with Marvin because from day one, he let me know that research is so important and key and you cannot tell these stories properly unless you are doing correct and deep research. So the first place I started with, and every time, every time I go to a site, um, the first voices that I want to hear are from the enslaved people because they are the flies on the wall They are the people that are going in and out of every quote-unquote scene. They know um, where everything is. They they see all, (laughs) and they actually see all. So um, I try to find as many uh, primary records from specific sites as well as the region from actual enslaved people. And then I start doing a bird's eye view of their entire lives. Who are the people they're interacting with? Are they going into stores? And if so, I need to read every journal from that store. I need to look at every ledger that is coming out of that store if these enslaved people are interacting with this person. I need to see the correspondence between that their enslaver and their enslavers' relatives because enslavers speak to one another. They're getting advice from one another. They're passing along uh, tips and tricks to being enslavers. This is something that is passed on. It is hereditary chattel slavery. And so too is enslavement, uh, the practice of enslaving people. So they're talking to one another. And if you see this flower growing prevalently around your plantation, most likely your enslaved women are aborting babies or they are trying to prevent getting uh, pregnant. And so these are the type of things they're talking about. The... WPA slave narratives at the Library of Congress, anyone can go online, Library of Congress, and look up these slave narratives. There are hundreds from across America. What happened was in the 1930s, the government started collecting the stories of formerly enslaved people because they realized they were hitting their 80s and 90s and even up into hundreds. And um, these stories would were about to be lost, so they started collecting those. Also, 
in the 30s, they were trying to create jobs as well. So those were jobs that were also created for uh, that purpose. Also, newspapers. Oh, my goodness. People love to complain in newspapers. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If you want to find out what was really being a bee in someone's bonnet in a certain period, read the newspapers. Just like today, there's always a co- opinion column yep. where someone's just complaining. Oh, the Black people are sitting all over the uh, place. They're sitting on the stoop. And yeah, so you see those uh, there as well. Um, they complain about Black people not getting off the sidewalk fast enough when white people are passing. They talk about um, how sometimes they're wearing to think high, high above their station. And then my favorite are journals. I love reading journals from people who have come into contact with enslaved people. I really prefer people who are coming from a different place. So travel journals are really amazing because when people are writing in a journal about their day-to-day lives, they aren't as detailed because they assume it's, also for them, but they're assuming that if it's read by someone else, they will know those intricacies, um, whereas someone from another place are describing the most insignificant details during the period, and I love that. Um, And they're also very opinionated. (laughs) They're so judgy of Americans. Uh, Wonderful. Uh, And of course, laws. Uh, You have to look at the local laws Every place I go, I'm like, give me all the laws having to do with enslaved people, free Black people, as well as the Indigenous population. And you get a lot from those broadsides as well. And the most, one of the most important for clothing, runaway ads. I, on your recommendation, I am reading Shane White's book right now. And I just, I, I just started I'm only like a quarter of the way through, but I'm through that first chapter where he talks a lot about the runaway ads and the descriptions of clothing in these ads are unbelievable. Absolutely. They were, uh, especially in the 18th century, man, some of these people were running away with a whole closet. I'm like, I know you weren't running fast. I know you were. One woman, she had three gowns. Two of them were wool. One was silk. She had two bonnets, one a white silk, one a black silk. Uh, Then we're not talking about her two quilted petticoats, another pair of shoes. I was like, whoo. Yeah, and and then there was a gentleman, I think, who had a velvet cape. Uh, Yes. You know, I, I loved that chapter so much. And and I think maybe at the end of the episode, we'll give a little more details about that book for anyone who wants to read it. So Absolutely. So you've already touched on this just a bit, but the type of work that you do involves quite a bit of emotional labor, you know, particularly in terms of researching and portraying the history of slavery in the United States. It's actually something that you've talked about frequently in the videos that you create for your YouTube channel, which is called Not Your Mama's History. And and in one of them, you remarked, it is not just putting on a costume. And I found that like very powerful. I'm hoping you might share some specific experiences with us about some of the aspects that are really rewarding about what you do. And of course, there are bound to be some challenges 
as well? So there are so many rewarding aspects of my job. First and foremost is when children have that aha moment where they start connecting history, not by using jumping from war to war, but connecting events as a whole, as well as uh, connecting people. Uh, and so I, that really brings joy to my heart. I think that I, I can measure that I've actually made a difference. Also, I realized that parents don't necessarily teach their children how not to be racist. They teach them how not to appear racist. Mm. And I, I don't think, I don't say that in a, um, in a hurtful way or accusatory way. It's very complicated. Race is very complicated. And I think right now, especially in our society, your instinct is, I don't want people to think that I'm racist. And children say the darndest things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have to allow space for children to say the darndest things, but come in and say, now let's talk about this and right. let's break down where where this comes from and and do it in a way that you don't squash their curiosity. That hurts so much when I see children's curiosity or their inquisitive nature pushed down. You have to be so careful when interacting with children. I find that very rewarding. I can feel when I lob a question back to a child and at first they're hesitant and then they kick it back to me and I send it back to them and then they get so comfortable in the conversation that they forget that they're talking about race and they're talking about slavery and then they start asking all these questions that they've always had but they've been a little bit afraid to ask because everyone tells them not to talk about it or you'll say the wrong thing and people will call you a racist. I really appreciate that children can ask these questions. Um, But then really explaining to them why we don't use certain words, because I've also realized that a lot of people don't, can't really explain something like blackface or what is blackface and why blackface is wrong. All they can say is it's wrong. So I think educating people on why it's wrong. Also, it makes people want to not do it (laughs) because once they really understand um, how hurtful it is, uh, we're all in it together. I had a wonderful experience a few weeks ago when I did my Problematic Mondays where I, I do a post on Instagram where I do a deep dive into something that is problematic or possibly racist and give more explanation about it and why it's problematic and spark up a conversation. And it was about a meme about Martin Luther King having to do with looting and how uh, Martin Luther King didn't harm anyone or damage any property and he changed the world. Um, It was a very problematic meme. Um, And so I posted uh, my explanation for why that meme was problematic. And a gentleman who had posted it the previous day 
I didn't know him. I wasn't following him or or anything, but he contacted me and he said that it changed his mind about the meme. It also made him look at Martin Luther King's legacy a bit differently. And it really forced him to really take a look at to as to why he posted that meme. Um, and he admitted that he kind of wanted to change the conversation a bit away from protests and why we were protesting to looting. So that's, I, I think that was a big win. Uh, if I can just change one mind or open one person's um, heart to uh, what's going on, that's a win for me. Yay. I love that story. I would say 99% of the people who interact with me, they are not malicious. They just don't know. They don't have a PhD in Africana studies. (laughs) Like they can't. uh, Sometimes if you listen in to the questions I get, a lot of them sound and are offensive. I like to say as an interpreter, it is my job to interpret people's questions into what they're actually asking. Mm-hmm. And so really, they're very curious. They're also very nervous. But I do get a 1% of people who are intentionally being buttheads. And that includes sexual harassment. So touching me, sometimes crowding me. Um, I've been called the N-word. I've been called a B multiple times on the job. Um and I also attribute that to our identity is so heavily tied to our, our history and what the stories that were told to us about who we are and who our people are. And so if, here I come along really telling them that a lot of what they were told were flat out lies. Mm-hmm. And so this, this could mean that this is really shattering what this person has based their entire personality on or their entire life story on. And it kind of, that's your foundation. And this, and so of course, a lot of people feel very angry about that. Um, And so I do get a lot of anger. I also, (laughs) um, Black interpreters joke that we are people's racial confessors. I do not want to be people's racial confessors, but for some reason, when they see a Black woman dressed as an enslaved person, they're like, I need to admit to every racist thing I've ever done or every terrible thing I've ever done to a Black person. Wow. Um, And so... People kind of feel like, oh, I got that off my chest. And that's in itself is very problematic, but that's just, and it, it comes with the job. Right. It's a common experience. And I think that's probably why you said it's so important when Black reenactors start out, that they start out kind of under the wing of another Black interpreter, right? Absolutely. Um PTSD, we're starting to see now, is very common amongst African-American historical interpreters, as well as Black reenactors. Yeah. Well, I told you guys that we were going deep today. We're going to take a short sponsor break with Cheney, but more when we come back. Welcome back. 
Kenny, I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into this whole big world of historic interpretation, because it really is this whole big world. And I'm guessing that many of our listeners probably don't know a lot about this. What kind of events do you work at? And how is your kind of narrative within that event? How is it? Is it decided beforehand? Who makes those decisions? I guess just flesh a little bit out in terms of like an average day in the life of Cheney McKnight. (laughs) All right. (laughs) It all depends on uh, where I am at the time and what I'm doing. So in my day-to-day nine-to-five job, I am a living history coordinator at a museum in New York City. And my job is to develop living history programming and train historical interpreters to put on that programming, um, as well as bring in people from the outside. But there are times where I do interpret in costume. I also freelance as well sometimes. So I go to historic sites and train staff on how to talk about race and slavery. Um, I also act as a consultant for some sites that are putting up exhibits. So I'll go through and kind of say, you need more explanation here. This whole thing is problematic. All this needs to go. Um, So uh, I act kind of as a conscious sometimes for some sites. Um, And then when I am interpreting, which is my favorite days, (laughs) uh, which seems to be maybe uh, twice a week now, uh, which I cherish those times. So my day usually starts with me uh, going over the program sheet, which is who will I be interpreting if anyone. Usually what happens is it's an informal interpretation. I am just an average person in New York City or wherever I am on that day. Um, Maybe let's say North Carolina or uh, upstate New York or even Boston. And um, I look over that and I get ready. Um, Most likely my clothing has already been laid out because of course with historical garb, you have to prepare. Uh, I usually end up uh, sewing Uh, patches or uh, tears because I am so rough on my historical (laughs) garb. I, oh, my poor clothing. (laughs) Uh, And so usually I know already when I arrive at a site what I'll be portraying. But a lot of times I will meet in the morning and sometimes they'll say, actually, (laughs) uh, could you re- Uh, do a redo and in an hour, can you come up with a new interpretation? And it depends if I've already done that interpretation. Let's say I am a dressmaker in 1771 New York. And then they come through and say, actually, um, would you like to be a tinsmith (laughs) in New York? And I'll say, ah, that's not in my wheelhouse. But What I can do is uh, talk about uh, trades in general. And so that does happen sometimes. Then I get dressed and then I hit the floor or the uh, site, wherever it is. Um, And it really, sometimes I am doing just interactions with people 
which I really enjoy. And then other times I am actually doing something. So maybe cooking, maybe I've been asked to um, do some work with the chickens, maybe milk a goat or a cow. Um, (laughs) I love goats. I cannot stand cows. And for some reason, (laughs) you know the site, you know who you are. Every time I go to certain sites, I end up uh, milking cows, which um, (laughs) cows, cows, anyway. (laughs) Um, So it really, it really all depends. But um, I love how versatile my job is. I do so many different things. And I I think I love all aspects. Wait, I hate paperwork. So yeah, the two days I'm stuck at my desk. That's probably the days I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you brought up cooking because I would love to know more about your work on historically accurate cooking techniques and recipes and and this like the overall scenarios that are being depicted when you're cooking. Because more than one of your videos actually shows meals being prepared over the campfire. And I, I'm, I'm like, whoa, no, no, I want more of that. I want more of that. What is that? How is that being made? I'm such a huge food nerd that honestly, if I wasn't a fashion historian, I might just have been a food historian. And you are a little bit of both, of course. So what role does food play within your work? And I'm hoping you might tell us a little bit more about how you research recipes and even techniques. So there's a few things there. Um, I unfortunately am not a food historian, uh, but I, I do do hearth cooking um, and I spend a lot of time around food historians. I am not the best hearth cook, but I am not the worst. <laughs> I am like a average. I could throw something on the hearth. I could give you a little lesson about it. Now, there are people who can make magic with a hearth. <laughs> so I, I had the pleasure of learning from some great hearth cooks. I learned from Michael Twitty. I learned from Janice Canaday at Colonial Williamsburg. I also learned from Harold at Colonial Williamsburg. And those are the people, they are Black food historians. And I learned almost everything I know from them. And I learned exactly how an enslaved person 150 to 250 years ago would have learned. They would have learned, they would have been thrown into the fire, (laughs) into the kitchen, and they would have been, uh, they would have observed and they would have learned one-on-one from a, a, a skilled cook how to cook. Now, I think the most important thing to know is that you have to already be a good cook mm-hmm. <laughs> to go cooking in on a campfire or hearth. I mean, you can make something if you're not a good cook, but no one's going to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so I, um, so I, I would have to say that I learned from some amazing cooks. I learned from Southern Black women so, of course, my mom, Mama McKnight, my Auntie Val, my Auntie Donna Goodman, who um, she has a book, uh, something to shout about. And she is a vegan soul food cook. Oh, wow. And grew up learning from these women. Um, and, of course, my Auntie Dolores and Gammy. I mean, like, these are just, I learned from black Southern women, how to cook. And I think when I pick up a 
uh, 18th or 19th century recipe, this is why it makes sense to me. Uh, because I learned from the women mm-hmm. who learned from those women who mm-hmm. were actually working and living in these households. Um, and I think that that makes a huge difference. Um, I, I just feel so grateful that I've just been in the right place at the right time to be a hearth cook. Now, as far as learning about hearth cook repetition, and you are going to burn a lot of things. <laughs> There will be days where you have burnt all your food and because that is all the food you have, that is what you're going to (laughs) eat. So I have um, a lot of food with uh, a lot of experience with food. Also, again, back to the WPA narratives, lots of goodies in there. Um, And of course, receipts. I learn a lot from modern West African women. So women from Ghana, uh, Sierra Leone. Uh, from Nigeria, I learn a lot from modern women because there's this intersection of African foodways and European foodways where you hit that sweet spot and you start seeing the actual foodways of the 18th century of a quarter site or what these people were cooking in these households. Oh, also, archaeology reports. They can find the bones of small animals and you kind of figure out what type of meat they were eating. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you know, the allotment and how much food that enslavers were purchasing. Yeah. Well, and also like in terms of embodiment, like how we have historically satisfied our basic human needs for sustenance, food, clothing, and shelter. I think that I would guess, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that all of these Those probably are big top three for people who work in this field of living history in terms of like, that's where you start. Um, So I would like, before we start to talk about style specifically, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the textiles that you use for your clothing. And do you make your own clothes? Oh, yes. Uh, So that's a yes and no to (laughs) do I make my own clothes. So most of my 18th century clothing, I make myself by hand because 18th century clothing is a lot easier to make depending on what you're making. Like a petticoat, it's just two rectangles sewn together and put on a string. You are good. Once you start getting into 19th century, it's more complicated. I personally despise sewing but I love clothing construction. Um, So I learned from uh, a woman, Jessica Craig, to look at original pieces and to look at its construction. And um, Jessica Craig just, she took me under her wing and she has this wonderful collection of original gowns and dresses from throughout the um from the early part of the 19th century to the later part of the 19th century and she's just opening dresses and showing me that a lot of these dresses are just terrible construction on sometimes so you can tell when it's just you know a woman at home sewing a dress and then you can tell if it's a mantua maker or dressmaker and so I learned a lot from that I also learned how to uh, pick out fabrics so most of the fabrics I picked out myself for um, the clothing I do a lot of the design how I want my clothing to look so if it is an 18th century most likely someone else sewed it 
I am doing um, a project now where I'm recreating um, dresses that would have been made on plantations in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. So watch out for that. But um, yeah, the answer is yes and no to construction. (laughs) But I love fabrics. I love going through the fabric store and just petting everything. And I also love looking at original pieces. Yeah. So could you describe maybe for our listeners, for a, just to say for a typical day of interpretation, what would you be wearing? And what is this process of getting dressed? <laughs> Again, I do so many time periods, but generally speaking, it's either, it's either mid to late 18th century early 19th century or mid 19th century. And the layering for those are very similar, uh, even if it's a different state or um, corset. So I would say uh, socks, stockings, and shoes always first. Don't make the mistake that I have always (laughs) made uh, where I put my corset on and then look down. I cannot bend. Um, So uh, stockings, shoes, then shift. Shifts are a wonderful garment that um, wicks moisture, keeps your fabric, your outer fabric from touching your skin. And usually for 19th century, the fabric goes all the way from your forearm and it covers all the way down to maybe mid, mid-calf, maybe lower, it depends. And it's a wonderful, it keeps you cool. It's a wonderful garment. I think we should bring back 18th and 19th century underwear. That's just my uh, two cents on the matter. Bring back the chemise. Right. (laughs) You would save so much on dry cleaning. Yeah. (laughs) And then um, I put my stays or corset over the shift or chemise. And then... Uh, I put my petticoats on. It really depends on, again, what I'm wearing. Usually for all periods, it's at least two. And then, of course, if you're doing like 1830s or even 40s, you want to put on more because you want to get that nice shape. But I'm usually someone who is depicting the average person, the average Black person, which a lot of times these are people who are enslaved. Um, So... I have to be able to climb stairs and um, I do a lot of clothing checks before I, um, (laughs) before I leave the house. Um, So I put on the two petticoats. Then I put on my jacket, my fitted jacket or gown, or if it is later, I'll put on my dress. If it is mid 19th century, then um, a kerchief. And of course my apron, I wear apron, with everything. It doesn't matter what period it is um, because an apron is a very important garment. And then I will either put on a cap or a head wrap. Most of the time, as you know, it's a head wrap. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we are going to get into the wonderful world of head wraps here in a minute, I think. Right. Yay! (laughs) I've been very lucky that I have interpreted at, and now I am at 32 states and I have interpreted in all types of climates in snow in rain in 100 degree weather in 
uh, four degree weather. It's <laughs> everything. So uh, location means everything as far as clothing. And I tend to try, always try to figure out what are the period solutions, um, the period correct solutions, because they're usually the best. I mean, these people knew what they were doing. So I, I started cutting corners a little bit, I think a few years ago. And so I use modern long underwear. And then I realized that my petticoats bunch. And if you just use the correct undergarments, like quilted petticoats and the proper stockings, everything works properly. It works the way it was designed to work. And so that's usually what I do. I look at the weather report or what it was the year before, and I start planning for that type of weather. Also, at some sites, they have an amazing um, wealth of research, so they can tell us what meal the fabric came from. So we can then look up what fabrics, um, what patterns that they have, or what dyes were they uh, using during the period, and we can actually come up with a fabric that's actually unique to that particular site. Um, that's usually really exciting. Like, this is something that someone, it's the exact pattern that someone was wearing. Cheney, thank you so much for doing this, for being here with us today. I mean, if this is just part one, I cannot wait for part two. I know. And at the top of the episode, I mentioned a book that we would detail, and I cannot recommend it enough. It's called Stylin, African-American Expressive Culture from Its Beginnings to the Zoot Suit. And it was written by Shane White and Graham White. And again, like I said, can't recommend it enough. If you are a fellow fashion historian who has not yet read this book, put it at the top of your list. In fact, everyone put it at the top of your list. It's just, it's really great. I will also be putting it at the top of my list. I have not read it. So thank you for the recommendation. Mm -hmm. Okay, dress listeners, that does it for us this week, but we will be back with more from Cheney. So stay tuned. In the meantime, perhaps you will consider the legacy of history and your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our mini-sode where we answer listener questions and or keep you up to date on the latest things going on in the realm of fashion studies. If you have a question you'd like to submit for a future fashion history mystery, please email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And of course, you can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.